Hello, y'all, and welcome back to another episode of History Spelunkers, the show where we take a deep dive into niche and obscure history and tell y'all about what we find. I am your host, Kelvin, use he, him pronouns, and back again with me today is my wonderful, fantastic, and curious co-host. Hey, I'm Ryan, he, him pronouns. How you doing today? Doing pretty good, pretty Pretty good, long week. Long week, I hear that. Well, fortunately, as we're recording this, we're going to get a little bit of a break soon, of course, with Thanksgiving coming up. Uh, What's one of your favorite things that you look forward to with Thanksgiving? I think with Thanksgiving, I always like randomly a really good green bean casserole. Green bean casserole. Okay, so I, I'm a stuffing man myself, uh, except yeah, I, I, I guess can... it's technically dressing whenever you don't stuff the bird with it, so I, I guess I like... So, so I guess it's dressing, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, can't, I don't know that I've ever had proper stuffing then, but my mom's dressing, yeah. ooh. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, I believe I'm going to be having some handmade dressing this this thanksgiving and that's gonna be good yeah yeah it's a it's a fun time and uh of course it's thanksgiving it is one of the most high profile holidays on the american calendar but there's you know a lot of deep you know we all know the gist of the thanksgiving story but there's a lot of nuance and details that most everyday people might not necessarily be aware of. So that's what we're going to talk about today is the story of Thanksgiving, how it fits into the the national myth that we tell ourselves as a country, and uh, some of the stuff that gets left out because it maybe doesn't necessarily fit some of these nice stories that we tell about ourselves. But we'll also talk about like some of the traditions that have strangely become associated with the holiday that if you were trying to explain to an alien no one would understand so well isn't that all traditions (laughs) true true so uh without further ado let's dive down the rabbit hole Why? The only thing of value on it is the secret treasure map. The rest is just instructions for running a country, and I'm pretty sure they're online. It just feels a little wrong. Morty, are you going to be a f***ing American nerd, or are you going to be cool and steal the Constitution with Grandpa? Here, hold this while I crack the hermetic seal. Why not just use this again? You just destroyed the map and activated the giant assassin hidden in the Statue of Liberty. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, what? It was a Trojan horse, Morty. Never trust the French. All right, fun's fun, but now the federal government's going to be pissed again. Way to go. And on America's birthday, or whatever the f*** Thanksgiving is. So, to begin with our Thanksgiving story, uh, why don't you go ahead and tell me, you know, we'll compare what we are, like, told in schools, right? The, the basic 
Thanksgiving story? So I'm terrible with remembering like stories like that, but in my head, I just have a picture of it was like just the pilgrims and the Native Americans all coming together with turkey and basically just the Native Americans welcoming the pilgrims into their land with uh, this feast and all the all that kind of stuff. But like the details I'm fuzzy on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, mine's pretty much the same way, except, you know, it's going to religious private school. You know, they put an emphasis on they're, they're fleeing religious persecution and then they get here and uh, then they have this big Thanksgiving feast that they've survived, you know, in this new land, whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, it's a, it's a simple story. Pilgrims, Indians, big meal, happy times. And I mean, it has to be a simple story if you're telling it to kindergartners, right? So, yeah, exactly. You know, a lot of context get lost because, um, like, kindergartners don't know what religious persecution is or anything like that. So we're going to work on bringing back some of the context and some of what led up to this big meal that we talk about and what happened after. Because surprisingly enough to most people, uh, this meal that we have this whole week off and, you know, all the celebrations and the big meal and all this stuff, it actually wasn't that big of a deal to them and it doesn't have a whole lot the actual meal itself doesn't have a whole lot to the story but the before and after is pretty extensive so yeah i always remember a lot of i'm sorry i always no. remember a lot of these things i'll start off kind of kind of neutral kind of normal you know wouldn't think too much of it and then it just gets romanticized over the years mm-hmm. and now it's such a big deal yeah yeah so To start off, uh, we'll start by asking the first questions that can develop nuance, like, who are the pilgrims, and what is this religious persecution that they came to America for, supposedly? So, in order to get the background on that, we gotta go over to England, and I have to give a very brief spark notes of... English religious history leading up to the 1600s. Um, <laughs> so uh, we'll do. How about it? Yeah, it, like I said, very brief. You could, you know, I'm sure they teach entire classes on this in like college and stuff for people that want to know this type of thing. But I, I actually, one year, one year of also coming from a private uh religious school mm-hmm. there was one year of my religion class that specifically was like a history course basically and so this might kind of ring some bells once you start talking about it for me yeah all right well let's see then um so we'll start our story in the early 1500s england at the time like the rest of western europe practices catholicism and uh this unity in europe would come crashing down on October 31st, 1517, when a German priest named Martin Luther went and nailed his 95 theses to a church door in Germany. 
This is basically a, a rant of all the things that he thought was wrong with the Catholic Church at the time. And a lot of people liked what he had to say and felt very strongly about it. And thus happened with the Protestant Reformation. Very violent period of time. 30 years war is a thing. We're not going to talk about that. We're just going to fast forward to 1534. Whenever, in the midst of all this Protestant reforming, King Henry VIII of England has a bit of a spat with the Pope over not being able to divorce his wife because she won't have the proper gendered kids for him. And so because that happens, he just decides to create an independent Church of England, and thus England is now a Protestant country. From that point, the Church of England existing, on the spectrum of things, it's still pretty Catholic in terms of its theology, structure, and just the general vibe of things. And he just kind of is basically like, instead of the Pope being in charge, me, Henry, I am in charge now. Um, and I'd say divorce is cool. Yeah, well, specifically this one divorce and the seven or eight that For me, follow. Yeah. Right. What I do is cool. Everything else can stay pretty much the same. Yes. But I'm in charge, so... Um, and so that's how it goes for a bit until a few years later whenever Henry's daughter Mary becomes queen and she very much was not down with what her father was doing. She's a very strong Catholic. And so she's like, scratch all the stuff that's been happening for the last 10 years. We're a Catholic country again. And you can imagine that that probably didn't go well, considering that England is still a Protestant country. The Church of England still exists. And uh, this Queen Mary is commonly remembered as Bloody Mary. So, yeah, did not go over well. And during her brief reign, uh, many priests, Protestant priests in the Church of England, ended up fleeing to the European continent to escape being burned at the stake. And there they came into contact with much more radical religious denominations and theology. And so whenever they returned to England after Queen Elizabeth I took the throne and reestablished the Church of England, they now had all these brand new ideas that they wanted to implement and further distance themselves from the Catholics that were just trying to kill them a couple years ago. Um, they wanted to distance themselves, de Catholicize, I guess is a word. Um, you could even say they wanted to purify the English church. This, of course, is where we get the Puritans from. Puritans, as a whole, is a very broad group of Anglican theology, but the main gist is that they wanted to, quote, purify the Church of England by reforming some of the practices in order to make it more Protestant. And by more Protestant mean a lot less Catholic, which generally resulted in more of the attempt to purge the church of the aesthetics of Catholicism 
So like a lot of the ceremony and the hierarchy church structure that was perceived to be Catholic, that was definitely a no, more so than any sort of real the- theological differences. Those would come later. So, for example, um, priest wearing elaborate ceremonial robes, that was perceived to be super Catholic and so super not okay. And so that's why you see Puritans dressing in these very Spartan black academic robes, you know, not a whole lot of color, not a whole lot of frill and fancy. They're just stoic. So that was one of the major aesthetic differences that you could see. But again, later, they this change in aesthetic accompanied with the influence from the European continent does lead to some Puritans adopting more Calvinist and Presbyterian ideology and theology, such as like predestination becomes more accepted in the English sphere. Again, trying to keep this brief as possible because this isn't a religious podcast and these are all super complicated terms that, yeah. So basically you get the gist of what I'm trying to say is happening though, right? Yes, religious establishment, bad. Move away from it, make your own religious establishment. That's quote unquote simple. (laughs) Yeah. So that's yes. a that's a Puritans. Um, so purifying the Church of England. Well, with it being a very broad group, there are some Puritans that are so radical that they say, you know what, Church of England, it's it's still too Catholic. It's still not good. There's no saving it. We just need to fully separate from the Church of England and make our own churches. Hence, they become known as separatists. These are really good names. Right, right. You can tell historians and academics came up with them, probably. Yeah. Um, So the people that we know as the pilgrims fall into this second category. If you really want to get into it, specifically, they were brownist separatists. We're not going to call them that. We're just going to keep calling them pilgrims because that's what we call them. Uh, yes, that makes it easier. The specific congregation and thought that the pilgrims followed, there were maybe only about 3,000 of them in England at the time who would like 100% we agree on everything that these priests are saying. Their main difference was that they disagreed with the church hierarchy system. They didn't like that. The ecclesiastical authority came from the top down with the king as like the fountain of where the church sprung from. They thought that the power of the church rested in the congregation and that should be a bottom up sort of thing. That was the main difference. They were also some other things like creating intentional and voluntarily separate communities in order that they can focus on being religious, you know, creating communes and that sort of thing. Um, But the main thing is the church hierarchy. Well, 
their thoughts about saying, hey, maybe the king shouldn't be in charge could be seen as seditious, treasonous even, to some people in a world without a separation between church and state. And so uh, this was also at the time whenever in England you were legally required to attend Church of England events and services. So it's not necessarily good if you're saying, we don't think this church has any worth and the king shouldn't be in charge of it. So where you see the perse- this is where you see the persecution. Some of the early leaders of the pilgrim movement, um, they were executed for their seditious crimes. But beyond that, for the general pilgrim populace, um, their persecution was that they would be forced to go to Church of England services or fined for not going or social ostracization as like, oh, you're the weird people that don't go to church. So, um, but beyond like two or three of the super early thought leaders, no one was getting killed for it. So on the whole spectrum of persecution, in the grand scheme of things, pretty tame, but, you know, it still exists. Well, this persecution, it's enough that a decent number of these pilgrims decided that, you know what, we're big on creating intentional communities separate from y'all. We're going to separate from y'all and head on over to the Netherlands because they're a lot more chill about different people than the British were. So, for several years, they lived outside the city of Leiden in the Netherlands and had a thriving community there. Integrated in the community, had jobs, brought their kids over, you know, everything's hunky-dory over in the Netherlands. That is until... Um, pilgrims began noticing some things in their mind that wasn't necessarily ideal. Like their children were growing up and with it being a voluntary community, they were voluntarily choosing not to be a part of it or, um, yeah. And there, because the Netherlands is like Protestant, they're not really having beef with the church of England because they aren't. In the Church of England, the whole trying to convert new believers really wasn't happening. And then the the main thing, though, was uh, all these English people did not like the fact that their kids were growing up speaking Dutch and living in a Dutch culture. They weren't being English enough. And so they decided, you know what? Let's just even leave Europe altogether. Let's go over to the New World, the Americas. We won't have to worry about the kids turning in little Dutch people. And they can speak English. And they won't be able to leave our community if they're on the other side of the world from everyone else. And, you know, and we can... What's wrong with the Dutch? I mean, I have nothing against the Dutch, but... That we speak English in this household, god damn it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they could also evangelize the 
indigenous people over in the Americas. So they, they saw a bunch of pluses to moving over to the Americas. And so that's what they decided to do. So they send some people back over to England to negotiate with the king um, in order to be granted a charter to settle in the New World because they needed the monarch's permission. He gave them permission and was very chill with all these people going over for quote-unquote religious reasons as long as they made money for the monarch and stuff. It was more of a business transaction for him than being like, oh yeah, I'm totally chill with y'all doing your religious thing. So Yeah, as long as you send me money, go for it. Right. Um, but that was enough. So that's that's whenever 1620, you get the pilgrims, they get aboard the Mayflower, and they sailed across the ocean, and they're trying to land in near New York, what we would now known as New York, but back then was New Amsterdam because they have recent connections with Dutch people and they know they're pretty chill as far as the whole religion thing goes. So if they could settle around them, they won't really have to deal with Church of England politics and they can still be close enough to some element of civilization to do their trading and whatnot. So... They land, establish Plymouth, and the rest, you know, is history. So yeah, that's how the Pilgrims ended up getting over there. On the other side of things, of course, the other big party at this meal were the Native Americans. So let's talk about them. Them being half the equation of this story. Yeah. This is probably the part that I haven't really heard. So, pilgrims arrive in the New World. It's not empty. There's people there. So, the indigenous living in Massachusetts, before the white people arrived, specifically in the what would become Plymouth, it belonged to the... I'm probably going to pronounce all these names wrong, so sorry uh, in advance. But Plymouth... That area specifically belonged to the Patuxet people. But about a year or two before the pilgrims arrived, they were completely decimated by disease. So that land at the moment was empty because all the people there had died. So there you go. Um, The first indigenous person that the pilgrims made any real contact with his he was an abenaki man from what is now maine and his name was samoset and on march 6 1621 he walked straight into plymouth and in english talked to their governor was like hey man what's up that's not you know i'm paraphrasing of course but he was like hello englishman or something like that I like to think that our uh, current English vernacular is actually what they spoke back then, right. specifically just Native Americans. It's like, hey man, what's shaking? But it's like, how does this Indian guy know how to speak English? Well, turns out, fishermen had been going around in Samoset's part of the world for several years now, 
and not settling anything permanently, but like traveling through the waters, doing trading and stuff. And they had taught him some of the language in order to facilitate trade and whatnot. So Samoset, he introduces the pilgrims to the existing political group in that area, which were the Wampanoag tribes. Um, and these are the Native Americans that we think of in the Thanksgiving story, the Wampanoags, and specifically their sachem or chief, who has two names. He was born as Osamakin, but his title, which eventually becomes what historians for the most part call him, is Massasoy, which stood for like Great Sachem or something like that. He ended up signing a treaty with the Pilgrims in March of 1621, and that began this relationship between the Pilgrims and the Indians, but specifically with the Wampanoags. There's more Indian groups in that region, different tribes and peoples that we will get to later in the story. But right now, they sign a treaty, Wampanoags and Pilgrims, and it's a mutual defense trading treaty. Pilgrims have guns and European weapons that Native Americans would really like to use in order to protect themselves from other Native Americans. So there you go. But part of this treaty, what happens is Massasoit ends up sending a man by the name of Tisquantum to live with the pilgrims and educate them on how to better survive in this New England American climate. Um, You probably, and our listeners probably, better know Tisquantum by his anglicized name that we teach kids is uh squanto you remember him yes i do actually that that kind of did well yeah so um squanto of course you know the story that we learn about him is he taught indian i mean he he taught the pilgrims how to plant corn by like using fish as fertilizer and You know, that's the main story that sticks in my head from the story that we're told as kids. Yeah, like he was the reason that they like were able to survive the winters because they could grow their own food and stock up. Right, right. Yeah, uh, Tisquantum, really chill dude. He helped helped the white man out. Well, uh, again, he knows English, so that's a question of, how does he learn English? And uh, Tisquantum's story is interesting and tragic. He is actually a Patoxic, the person who lived in Plymouth before Plymouth was a thing, before the pilgrims arrived. Several years before, he had been kidnapped by fishermen and taken to Europe where he was enslaved in Spain. And he spent some time there before eventually making it to England. We think he spent some times in like a monastery where he was educated to some extent. He might have met Pocahontas while he was over there. We don't really know, 
but he was enslaved in Europe for a number of years until eventually he made his way back over on a fishing vessel to the Americas, returned to his village only to discover that everyone he knew from his life was dead. So he was the last Patoxit. Yeah, that's very sad. And so he ended up going to live with the Wampanoags until the pilgrims came. And then for about 20 months um, as part of like this treaty deal. But also from what we can gather, I guess he enjoyed his time being with the pilgrims. Whether it's from, you know, this feeling of importance as like, I'm the person that they have to go to in order to communicate with these people or, you know, or if it was just a genuine, I like these guys, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But for about 20 months, he's there educating them about agriculture, hunting, other survival knowledge, but he himself would end up getting ill and passing away during his time there. So... That's the tale of Tisquantum or Squanto. So yeah, that's the context leading up to the big moment of the Thanksgiving meal. So Thanksgiving meal, again, uh, it's not a very long story. Basically, You have 102 pilgrims that came across on the Mayflower. Not all of them were actually pilgrims, but that's not important. So you have 102 people that come across, they settle in the New World, and they almost immediately start dying. Um, They landed in Plymouth in December. So Massachusetts in December without any sort of lodgings having just traveled for several months overseas. Not a good... good Yeah, they they really thought this out. Um, So, they eventually do end up getting some housing situations set up. But But by the end of the winter, 45 of the 102 people had died. And so, then in March, they meet Samoset and Tisquantum and Massasoit. They get this treaty all set up. They get educated on how to plant and harvest food and hunt and all that stuff. And so uh, what we know is that sometime in the fall of 1621, they celebrated a harvest festival. We don't know when exactly this happened, but probably sometime between late September or in October. And according to the oral history from the Wampanoag people that's been passed down through the years, this harvest festival was originally just set up for the pilgrims just for themselves. But the natives, upon hearing like some gunfire, that they thought, oh my god, war's coming. So they went to go check to see what's out. Turns out it was just some celebra- celebratory gunfire. And they say, they're like, oh, look, we got a party going on. Why don't y'all join us? And so the Wampanoags, they join the food in the party. Party goes on for about three days. Samoset, I mean, 
Massasoit and around 90 Wampanoags ended up showing up. So there was almost twice the number of Indians at Thanksgiving than there were pilgrims. Um, but yeah, th- it was a three day rave harvest festival. It had deer, what the, turkey. Yeah. What? Why don't we have the three day parties anymore? I hey man, I mean you're you're basically eating the leftovers for the whole week, anyways, right? So yeah, but I don't know if it's a party. Mm. I don't think that counts. I mean, eating the food and actually having a three day party is is different. True. True. But yeah, this wasn't even like a, this wasn't a Thanksgiving. It was a harvest festival because in the pilgrim worldview and culture, Thanksgivings are an entirely separate thing and they're mostly defined by long periods of fasting. So the exact opposite of what we do. Um, And... They, the pilgrims in Plymouth actually didn't have a quote-unquote proper Thanksgiving until 1623. But that's what we know about the quote-unquote first Thanksgiving. Um, there was really even some debate over whether or not it actually happened until we ended up finding some first-hand accounts but really there's only one or two people that even cared to write about the issue in their diaries. So obviously wasn't big on the whole radar. Yeah. You would think it would be a little bigger because it's like, you know, we almost started this one winter and then now we're able to make our own crops. So a big celebration that we can actually eat our own food. Right. So then that leads us to like our next question. Um, if it wasn't a big deal to them, why is it such a big deal for us? And, like, this wasn't even the first Thanksgiving in America, um, or what would become the United States, because Jamestown had a very similar celebratory harvest meal in 1619, And if you want to go even further back, there's a recorded Thanksgiving celebration in what would become Texas all the way back in 1598. So, like, why is this the one that we're basing the whole month of November around, basically? Yeah. Well, the Civil War is the short answer. Um... (laughs) A bit longer answer is that um, in 1777, it was the first time the United States Congress issued a Thanksgiving declaration. But up until the Civil War, these were just kind of randomly issued. You know, it wasn't an every year type of thing and it wasn't really a general vibe around the holiday. It was just, oh, give thanks, you know. Nothing super serious. But in 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, President Lincoln thought it would be a good idea to celebrate a holiday as a means of promoting geniality and brotherhood. You know, we have a lot of people that aren't happy with each other right now. So if we have a main holiday that's about bringing people together And talking about what we have in common, that would be good with this whole Civil War thing going on. 
That really makes sense. Right. Um, and so the holiday that year actually ends up replacing what's known as evacuation day, which was up until this point in time was a de facto national holiday that had been held on November 25th of every year. And it commemorated the British withdrawal from the United States after the war of independence. And so, so Thanksgiving basically ends up taking evacuation day spot in our calendar and we don't, celebrate evacuation day anymore right so it, it yeah it completely gets subbed out we celebrate thanksgiving now it's in november we're all having a good time there you go in 1870 president grant makes thanksgiving a annual recurring thing a federal holiday in washington dc And since that time, all the states have adopted it, and it becomes the big deal that we know. As far as it being on this floating Thursday, the third Thursday of the month, that was set during the Great Depression with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, In the 30s, he moved it up because previously it had been on the last Thursday of the month month of november he moved it up a week so that way there would be an extra week of christmas shopping to boost the economy during the great depression so oh yes capitalism capitalism is ingrained with this holiday baby we haven't even talked about black friday yet well uh, that's a whole other deal Uh, now just the entire month of november (laughs) true true but, uh, so yeah, that explains, like, the timing of it. So why are we celebrating the pilgrims instead of it just being a holiday about getting together? Uh, well, it just happened to be about timing. Yeah, it's it happened to be in about the fall, but around the same time that Thanksgiving becomes a holiday, you have people rediscovering i want to say is a word that could apply here um but like they became more interested in the story of plymouth and the mayflower and all that stuff again because a couple of first-hand accounts by like william bradford who's a famous pilgrim and a couple other people they got published um after they found some long lost documents or whatever And the main person who can almost single-handedly be attributed with the creation of Thanksgiving as a national holiday, her name is Sarah Josepha Hale, and she's from Boston, so she cares about the pilgrims, and she was really adamant about getting Abraham Lincoln. She really lobbied him to make this holiday. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a celebrity at the time, so it carried a lot of weight. And she was able to begin. She began pushing for this Thanksgiving pilgrim celebratory holiday in like the 1840s. So it just happened to coalesce about the same time, and so that's the reason why. 
we it's celebrate. Interesting to think of someone, yeah, it's interesting to think of somebody as a, cel- as a celebrity in the 1840s. Well, well, she's actually one of the first uh, women novelists in the United States. So. Oh, okay, I see. I see. I don't know the anything that she wrote off the top of my head, but um, but I, the Hale last name, like it, it, for some reason, it's tickling my brain, but I'm not sure exactly. So, but anyway, so yeah, that's like the simple answer of like, this is why we celebrate Thanksgiving in November, and it's about the pilgrims. Boom. Done. We can end the episode there, right? Wrong. That's what it sounds like. Wrong. (laughs) There's more. I did say we were going to talk about what happens after Thanksgiving. Um, But I I wanted to, like, big picture this. um, At the start, you know, I was saying how, like, this Thanksgiving is one of, like, the foundational points of the story that we as Americans tell ourselves about our history. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and I called it a myth because it is a myth, it, which doesn't mean that it's not true. It's a myth is just a story you tell yourself. Would you call it more of like folklore, maybe folklore myth? Yeah. It, it's, it's part of the story that we, as the United States of America, we tell this story to justify our existence as a nation to give, you know, we don't have the long storied traditions from, you know, European countries that can trace it back, you know, to thousands of years ago. Right. You know, it's, yeah. It, yeah. it gives weight to the ethos of what it is to be an American and it promotes us as this exceptional country that's different from everybody else so so that's what i mean by this american myth and like yeah no that makes sense and like it's it's not like they lay it out in a big book which sometimes they do that's your history textbook but um (laughs) but like no it's like just simple things like you know you go to school in american history whenever you're super young and you know, modern stuff, whatever, but like the three important dates that you know before America becomes a thing are 1492 with Columbus, you know about Thanksgiving and the Pilgrims, and then boom, it's American Independence Time, baby. Right? It, it's, yeah, pretty much. There's, it, it's kind of crazy that the Columbus was that far before. Yeah, 1492, America. 1620, 1776 that's you know that's what they teach and yeah i mean yeah you have to make it simple because again they're young kids they're not going to get all the nuance but like after a certain point you got to grow out of that and the story of the first thanksgiving not only is it just like just a point of like oh this is our colonial period it's also like the story itself it has it has the significance of religious freedom which is in our bill of rights it has its foundations of constitutionalism because of the mayflower compact was one of the first constitutions 
written in the world, and they wrote it on the Mayflower before they even stepped foot on the mainland. You know, it's, they overcame these great odds, so it's this Protestant work ethic of you can make it in America, you know, it's peaceful interactions with the indigenous people that we are now occupying their land on, but it's also like we created a multiracial society way back in the day, so we can do it again now. You know, it's, there's a lot of stuff kind of in the subtext of the story that you can interpret from it that Americans can rightly take pride in. I mean, there's a lot of, it, it's a feel-good story. Yeah, it really is. But the important thing to realize about it is it's not necessarily 100% true. Like, Yes, religious freedom, freedom from persecution was a big aspect of it. Yes, Mayflower Compact's real. Yes, they did have, for a time, generally peaceful interactions with the indigenous people. But there's more. There's more to it that gets washed away or ignored because it doesn't fit that narrative. Hey y'all, Kelvin here from the future. Uh, we're actually going to end the episode here today. We're splitting it into two parts, so be on the lookout for that part two. Um, super long episode, we had a lot to talk about, so go find it. But uh, we're going to end here today, so I'll close you out right now. Our music is by Mountaineer. You can find their stuff and more on Upbeat.io. The opening clip is from the Rick and Morty TV show. It's funny. Um, as always, we'd like to acknowledge that we're recording this on land that rightfully belongs to the Kiowa, the Comanche, Tonkwa, and other indigenous peoples. If you have any questions, suggestions for future, <laughs> have any questions, suggestions for future episodes, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at History Spelunkers. That's history, S P C. I can't spell. That's history, S P E L U N K E R S at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in part two. Bye bye. Spelunking herself. S-P-C. Spec-lunkers. <laughs> Spec-lunker. Yeah, Spec-lunker. Ugh.